0: flying delivery drones are finally here. Yes, really. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Let's start the first trading day of 2023 by talking about something that so many people focus on in early January, and that is physical fitness.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say taxes or something like
0: that. No, no, just <laughs> no. I don't want to start the year on a downer. Although,
1: Nobody does. Nobody
0: does. Although, you know, physical fitness isn't necessarily uh, all that fun. Anyway, you know what? People should just stop listening now. No, I, I, I did want to get your thoughts on this, because uh, Chris Rondo, who's the CEO of Planet Fitness, and he's been the CEO for 10 years, uh, he was on CNBC this morning, and like any responsible CEO. He was talking his own book. He was talking up the strength of the Planet Fitness business. And when he got a question about Peloton and at-home fitness, I I thought he handled it well because he said, look, there's always been a a push for at-home fitness, even invoking Richard Simmons and Jane Fonda workout videos something that younger listeners are might be scratching their head at but uh, older people like you and me nod along and say oh yeah I remember that oh yeah but I, it it prompted me to sort of look back at the business of planet fitness pre-pandemic and i i guess my question for you is is this a business that you think is worth a look there look, again, there's always enthusiasm for physical fitness at the start of the year, and you know, if you can tell me that they're going to retain a high percentage of the new customers they get, then I think I'm more interested. But what do you see when you look at the books of Planet Fitness? you know I think it, it at first, I probably would have said
1: just no. Full stop. This is not a business I'm really interested in and just kind of moving forward. I mean, I'm not anti-fitness, don't get me wrong. Um, but but it is one to to your point, I mean, it is one where it feels like it gets a lot of hype. Fitness gets a lot of hype at the beginning of the year, people are making New Year's resolutions, and then it kind of fades, and then you sort of hit the reset button and you go back to square one the following year. I think in the case of Planet Fitness, though, this is it is interesting, I think, the story. I think that there is an opportunity there. You they quote um, in their research, there are 80% of consumers without a gym membership today. And obviously that's a lot of people. Um you know, one of the things I think we learned through the past couple of years. Um, it, it's a lesson that probably some of us knew, some of us learned, and for some of us it's been reiterated. It's to be careful investing with that absolute mindset. And in you know, what I mean by that is it's saying something like at home fitness. Will render gyms obsolete. I think that was a very easy thing to say over the past couple of years, um, but when you take a step back and actually think about it a little bit more deeply, you realize that's that's a flawed statement. That's not really um, something that's going to play out, and, and I think we've seen that through you know the numbers that Peloton continues to to, to record, and the I, I would call it less than. Less than enthusiastic rollout of of Apple's fitness product. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of Apple diehards out there that use it, but but it's it's certainly not making headlines. Um, it, it felt like so over the over the past couple of years, it, it, yeah, at home fitness made a lot of sense. But but you made a very good point there early on, and I'm glad that he mentioned it too in that interview. It's like. You go back to the days when we were kids, we remember, you know, Richard Simmons, Jane Fine. At home fitness has always existed in some shape or form. So that's not really new. I think what's new is just, you know, the 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 what technology can do to enhance it. And obviously the equipment side of things that makes it a little bit uh more compelling in certain cases. But I you know, I I I was thinking about this from the perspective of some linkedin data that that we used to tout remember when linkedin was a publicly traded company and you had linkedin and facebook it was sort of the early days of social media and we had the social network and the professional network and linkedin always touted that data that people wanted to maintain separate identities right they wanted their professional lives to be separate from their personal lives and that's why linkedin didn't felt didn't feel as threatened by facebook at the time and i think that That made sense, and I think that's held up rather well um I think it extends further out too. I mean over the past couple of years, we've seen the benefits of being able to live a hybrid lifestyle and and get things done when we needed to get them, as opposed to having sort of this siloed existence of work home in, in wherever else you you you're gonna go throughout your days and your weekends and whatnot but but I do feel like. And we're seeing this play out in Planet Fitness numbers. People want to go to the gym. Maybe not everybody, but people want to go to the gym.
0: Well, and I I think that Rondo and his team are smart by really pushing moderation. Yeah, Uh, you know, one of the things he talked about was we we don't want people coming you know, joining a, a, a Planet Fitness gym and coming seven days a week, that's a recipe for burnout. We want people coming two, three times a week, get a good workout. And, that, you know, and that's really the pathway to um, a longer relationship, which is, you know, look, there, there are so many businesses and Planet Fitness is one of them. Part of what they're dealing with is customer churn. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're Rondo, you're looking to get new customers in and keep them for as long as possible.
1: Yeah, and I think that's always going to be a challenge for for a company like that for a concept like Planet Fitness. I mean, churn I think is always just going to be part of of the beast there unfortunately, but when when you look at the actual numbers of this business, I mean, I was I was I was actually pretty impressed. So, I mean, just just looking at it from a member's perspective, for example, I look at their their recent 10K, right? And you go back to the end of 2021. They recorded 15.2 million members as of the end of 2021, and that compared to 10.6 million at the end of 2017. Right Now, if you look at the end of this third quarter that they just recently reported, they now stand at 16.6 million members. So, that membership is growing. And if, when you look at the revenue numbers that they're recording, you go to 2020. They took a, you know, it fell off a cliff in 2020 for obvious reasons. They recorded 363 million dollars in revenue, but then it started coming back around. 2021, 534 million. Right? Trailing 12 months, $782 million in revenue. So, this is a company that continues to grow, and kind of going back to that, to that 80% number that I quoted earlier, I mean, you've got an opportunity there, 80% of consumers without a gym membership. Now, think about this from the perspective of just economics. I mean, at-home fitness is kind of what you make it, right? but a lot of what it has been made out to be over the past couple of years is, buy this killer piece of equipment, subscribe to our service, and you're set for life. Well, I don't think that's going to work because I think people are finding more and more they actually do want to get out. And I think a lot of people are finding they want to maintain separate professional lives, (laughs) separate personal lives, and separate fitness lives, perhaps, as well. Um, But but I think just from the perspective of economics, you can, right now, join a Planet Fitness for $1 down and $10 a month. I mean, think about the risk that, that 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 entails versus buying some thousand Plus dollar piece of equipment, and, and oftentimes it's, it's far more than that. Even even refurbished stuff. So I mean, the economics just makes sense from uh, for, for the gym perspective versus the at home fitness. And so then the consumer has to weigh right: is is it the convenience that I want? Um, I mean, am I going to just commit myself to this one piece of equipment, or would I rather? Save a lot of money and have to maybe suck up driving to the gym a couple of times a week, but I'm going to have this whole wide world of equipment, services, and whatnot that I can benefit from. To me, it's not to say that Planet Fitness is is just a no-brainer winner, but it certainly it certainly presents a very compelling value proposition for for folks who are looking to bring more fitness into their lives.
0: Let's move on to a a future that's been delayed a couple of years, but it appears to finally be here, and I'm referring to the future of flying drone delivery. Amazon is now delivering small packages by flying drones in California and Texas. This is a part of the business uh, referred to as Amazon Prime Air. This this is something that I think it was 2016-2017 t- that uh, CEO Jeff Bezos was on 60 Minutes <laughs> touting this. Yeah. They got the clearance. From the FAA in 2020, but now they're testing it in these uh, rural areas of California and Texas, and I don't know about you, but I'm really curious to see where this goes because I I can see this not having a huge material effect on the company's bottom line anytime soon. I can, however, see you know depending on how the next 12 months goes. This could be a nice little ripple effect in terms of cost controls. Well, yeah, you said I think the, the key words are the operative
1: words anytime soon. I don't think this is something that's going to just immediately boom, just change, change the, uh, the outlook for a company like Amazon, particularly when you consider how big it is now. But I, I mean, yeah, to your point, I mean, this is just this went from like a seed of an idea in, in an interview 10 years ago almost to something that's actually now starting to bear fruit. And, and as often as is often the case with Jeff Bezos, I mean, it just takes looking at it from a very long term perspective, right? That's his forte, his long term thinking, and this is no different. Um, for me, I'm excited as a consumer because I think it really does open up a world of possibilities. I mean, everything is is you know we we are living in an on-demand world, and delivery is just such a key part of that. I mean, we're seeing FedEx and UPS deal with those challenges. We're seeing Amazon jump in there to try to capitalize on on the opportunity, and and um. You know, soak up some of that excess demand as well. I love the fact that this is making progress, and I think it. I think it has a lot of potential. Um, it, it makes sense that they're starting small in areas where uh, it, it would be relatively easy to to uh, manage. Because why they say that the drones are autonomous, they're they're managed by humans, right? I mean people are overseeing these deliveries, and that that makes all the sense in the world. And so, I mean, there is going to be a point where you wonder, will the AI the, or the machine learning get good enough to where they can scale this? Because that's ultimately the, the goal, right? They got to figure out how to scale this. You can't have 50,000 people monitoring, you know, these deliveries 24-7, which is not cost-effective. Um, it, it, is, it is something that is, is there are dangers involved, right? I mean, I was reading about one incident here. There was a test site in Oregon, where I mean, a drone fell from the air, one hundred and fifty plus feet out of the air, and started a brush fire that went across twenty-five acres. So, I mean, like that, that, that thats thing, a problem. That didn't go well, right? And so, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to contend with all sorts of, of issues, whether it's other drones, power lines, whatever. But again, I mean, we were talking about that. I mean, many people were looking at this 10 years ago and thinking there was absolutely no way this is going to work. It's just no. Uh-uh. No, it can't it can't happen. Um we're we're seeing that it can happen. And and I mean, he's getting he's getting the green light from the regulators to at least try to build this out to some to some capacity and and maybe it's something that serves more underserved areas than everywhere, right? Um but ultimately, I think this is just another example of Amazon's Philosophy, right of just taking that uber long term view, trying things knowing th- knowing that not everything is going to work, but you take lessons away and, and and again, this is one of those things that really really just exists right in their wheelhouse. So, so I suspect it's something they'll they'll continue to work very diligently on, and, and I would imagine we will see this continue to roll out in the coming years. And I think, as consumers, you need to be excited about
0: that, and certainly as Amazon shareholders, uh, you should be excited about it as well. One more thing to keep our eyes on. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Over the next three days, we're going to be taking a closer look at different categories of stocks and what you might want to think about in the year ahead if you're considering making an investment. Today, we're starting with growth stocks. Dylan Lewis and Asit Sharma discuss new questions they're asking about growth stocks and one business that still has tailwinds in a tough environment. I think when you look back at twenty
2: twenty two, there were a lot of takeaways in general. It's been a really tough here for the market. I think there are perhaps more lessons in the growth stock category than almost anywhere else. When you look back over the past year, what do you think of? What are your what are your meditations on the growth area?
3: Yeah, Dylan, so many big picture things changed that little pieces of, of investment theses we were making on growth stocks, those also have changed as well. I sort of think of this as similar to basketball. In basketball, you've got the three-point shot. You've also got free throws which are worth one point. If a team is really great shooting from the outside, you don't have to worry how good they are at the line when they're making those free throws for one point. But take that away, suddenly the little things matter more. And with the change that we've had in interest rates, with inflation being so high, this has an effect on the way investors value growth stocks. And there are certain things that you've got to pay a little bit more attention to that um, play out in an investment thesis.
2: And I I think that there are probably a lot of listeners that are in a pretty similar position to me, Asit, where I started investing in 2014. So much of the macro environment that I grew into and really learned how to invest in was one of money being relatively easily available, of companies being rewarded for growing their addressable market, and and to some extent, figuring out the bottom line later. What, what, What would you give as advice for this new chapter for a lot of people that maybe haven't lived through some of these periods before?
3: Sure, Dylan. And, you know, same with me. I've been investing for quite a long time but periods like this will lull you in some way. So you'll sort of forget the lessons that you know are there and you have to pay attention to. Let's talk through a few of them. One is something you just touched on, which is grabbing market share. When interest rates are low and, and money is flowing, so money's flowing in the capital markets, investors are gladly putting money into growth stocks people really don't care at what cost a company grabs its market share. The idea is, at some point down the road, those cash flows are going to be really valuable if you are investing in a company that's got very persuasive products and services in the marketplace. so When that picture changes, the present value of money decreases, interest rates go up, your dollars are worth less in the future, you start to pay attention how much is this company really spending to grab that market share? Is it running at a a big loss because if money is worth less, those future dollars are going to be worth less to me. Maybe I don't want to pay so much for that stock today. Another thing I think we should be more in tune with in the growth stock arena, and I'll say here, so many growth stocks are technology oriented, if not tech stocks themselves, is what kind of yield on your R&D spend, your research and development spend are you getting? When times are flush, most investors just want to see that a company is spending more and more on research and development as it's increasing its sales. But in a time like this, we have to see, well, okay, what are you getting for that spend? Are you churning out additional products and services at a regular cadence? Are you increasing your competitive edge? That's very important. Uh, Just a few more that I think will make sense to many investors. What is the clarity of future cash flows? In other words, I know this company is going to generate cash flows in the future. Look how it's growing. It is conquering its market. But if I can't see the bottom line return on those revenue dollars, then I should take a pause in an environment like this. I shouldn't just blindly invest in a company. I should be able to see that they're going to be able to scale with profit and generate lots of cash flow, generate profits according to generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. Um, and just, you know, a couple other things, the quality of the customer base becomes more important when money starts to to curb a bit in terms of investment. You don't want to get as many as customers as possible if you're in the growth stock arena. Fewer hands with deeper pockets makes a lot of sense. You can grow a lot easier that way. And then finally, I'll say to me something that's very important in an environment like this is to not simply be a challenger company but to have a path where you can be a dominant top one, two or three company in your particular niche or industry. Because when you have that, that points to the stability of those cash flows in the future. You've already achieved the status where you're now deflecting competition rather than being a scrappy upstart that is maybe generating losses now to get there. So you tilt a little bit more to the companies that are more clearly becoming these dominant type of companies.
2: Now, Asit, I'm sure there are some listeners that are like me, staring at the brokerage account, seeing that there are businesses that you know maybe a year ago they absolutely loved. Now, maybe they like or or love a little bit less. Are some of those growth names, but maybe aren't profitable. At what point are you willing to accept a business not being profitable? Where where does that spend go? You mentioned R and D before. Like, how are you trying to assess a business that? maybe doesn't have cash coming in in the way that investors are currently rewarding, but you're willing to accept it because it's checking other boxes.
3: I think for companies that are clearly obtaining that market position and maybe have a reason to show big losses on their income statement, it can make sense. And here, many of you will already see where I'm headed with this. We're thinking about stock-based compensation. If you know that a company is having a lot of its SBC, in other words, offering a lot of stock-based compensation to software engineers, to very high-level salespeople. They're building out a direct sales force, for example. That can be acceptable. A company which is sort of throwing money at their whole equation and being indiscriminate with how they use that stock-based compensation can be a red flag, frankly, because it means that that true operating cash flow is never going to be that strong. So it's, again, a question of quality. That's a case where I think I can be a little more comfortable with a company that has losses today. When we think about the macro picture, which is certainly affecting all of this, there's something else that comes to mind, and that is the fact that. Uncertainty is the defining feature of the macro picture right now and that means that you and I probably are being more careful with what we spend (laughs) as we see like the price (laughs) of milk going up, but businesses are too, right? They're pulling back on their spend. So where I see a company that has something businesses must purchase, uh, digital transformation services is one that I'm particularly fond of, but cybersecurity is another, you can feel a little more comfortable if a company is reaching that dominant position but still generating losses because people have to have that product or service.
2: So, Given everything that's happened over the last year or so, I think the, the Vanguard growth index is down 30-plus percent over the last year. By comparison, I think their value index is down about 5% over the last year. It would be easy, I think, for people to to swear off growth names, especially because some of the individual stocks in that category are seeing much bigger declines from all-time highs. My confidence isn't shaken in the space. I feel like, personally, I'm just refining the approach a little bit. Is that how you and the Stock Advisor team are tending to think about it?
3: For sure. You know, at Stock Advisor, we have two recommendations every month, month in, month out. We are always looking for great businesses. We're looking to re-recommend some of our favorite names that have been beaten up. One of the reasons for this is that you dollar cost average in a down market into great companies. It's so hard to see the future when you've gone through a year like 2022. Your mind gets in the weeds your soul gets in the weeds. You look at that brokerage account, it's all in red. But the ability of, for us to be able to see past that five years from today, 10 years from today, if, if we could jump to those points today, we'd wish in hindsight that we had taken advantage of the opportunity to buy some of these businesses at a really great point to average out our cost basis, and that leads to those future returns. So it's more about tweaking the approach, being a little bit more rational looking at some of the things I talked about earlier, still buying great businesses, being a steady buyer in the market is extremely important. It's not about shying away from growth stocks. One thing history shows us is that growth stocks drag the market down, but they're also the most resilient on the way back up. and, and Those are times where many investors wish they hadn't stopped buying those, those quality high-growth companies.
2: If assets impassioned plea right there got you hooked and you are not uh, swearing off growth stocks, don't worry. We have a stock, we have a growth stock idea for you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a business that you feel like checks a lot of the boxes for a quality growth company, even in this kind of tougher macro environment that we're in. And that's CrowdStrike. Why was this a business that you wanted to surface as kind of a best in class growth company?
3: So CrowdStrike, number one, Dylan, it plays in the cybersecurity arena. And I mentioned that when companies are pulling back on spend, it's a very, very strong idea to buy those companies that people can't ignore. And, and you really can't ignore the need to have endpoint security within your organization to protect your network. There are so many different facets to cybersecurity that you have to pay attention to as a business in this networked world. I think it's fun that CrowdStrike itself has a yield on its R&D, which is easy to see. The company has no less than seven different services within this Falcon platform, which is a sort of crowdsourced platform that serves billions of data points every day. And everyone who is a member of CrowdStrike services, everyone who subscribes to their services, gets the benefit of this data collection and identification of new threats. So we see that yield um, on the R&D spend. In addition, CrowdStrike's products are extremely sticky. If you look at their most recent quarterly report, Dylan, they say that subscription customers that have adopted five or more, or six or more, or even seven or more of their modules equal 60%, 36%, and 21% of their customer base respectively. So as time goes on, they're selling within their platform without much effort. Every upsell you can do to a current customer obviously is a more efficient spend versus going out and getting a new customer. And This goes back to those favorable unit economics I was talking about at the very beginning of our conversation. You want to grab market share at a reasonable cost. The other things that we like about it in Stock Advisor are just the growth rate, the fact that this company is growing its revenue, its gross profit at a 50% percent plus year-over-year cadence. It's obviously becoming dominant in its industry. Lastly, I will say what's so important in this day and age in this high inflation, high interest rate environment, is that they've got extremely vigorous cash flow. They do have gap net losses, but when you look at actual free cash flow, you take away some of the non-cash expenses like that stock-based compensation. The cash flow yield on this company is really attractive. In this most recent quarter, their cash flow is extremely impressive. In this most recent quarter, the company generated 30% free cash flow yield in comparison to revenue. So for every revenue dollar, 30% of that became free cash flow.
2: So to summarize, Asset, strong relationship with their customers decent cash flow and improving business economics, and they are at a crucial
3: crossroads
2: for most businesses right now. It's spend that will not be going away anytime soon.
3: Very well stated, Dylan. I wish I could have said that so (laughs) succinctly.
2: Well, I got to (laughs) summarize it. I got the easier job here. CrowdStrike is not only a best-in-class growth company from the Stock Advisor team, it's also one of the businesses that the Stock Advisor team put together as part of a report for 15 stocks to kick off 2023. That report and a member event that will be tomorrow uh, hits growth, dividend, value, energy, and multi-bagger categories of stocks. If you want more stock ideas and you're not a member, don't worry. We're going to be doing a stock idea every single day this week, checking different boxes. You'll be hearing about dividend and value opportunities later in the week. And if you want the full rundown on companies from the Stock Advisor team, just become a Stock Advisor member. You can check things out. The member event will be available for replay. Asset, thank you so much for bringing this company to our listeners, and thank you for all you do. Thanks a lot, Dylan. This was a great conversation.